Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Midwestern Marks podcast. Uh, we're back. It's been a while. Got some fun announcements today and also some interesting stuff to talk about. I'm going to first cover some news uh, relating to Latin America and elsewhere as far as the socialist movement. Going to talk a little bit about the beef that's been going on between TYT, Jimmy Dore, some of the folks who I guess you would call uh, social Democrats in the new media sphere here on YouTube. Um, and then we're going to talk about Marx's preface in the economic manuscripts. So it should be a fun show today. How are you doing, Carlos? I'm doing really good, Eddie. I'm excited to get into it. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. I'm pumped to be back with another podcast. Uh, we've been super busy lately, um, but we're, we're happy to be doing this again because podcasting is definitely one of our favorite things to do as far as the content that we put out. Uh, as far as Midwestern Marks, we just got um, Dr. Paul Cockshot on board as a writer, um, as well as Bridget O'Quillen, who um, is a proletarian feminist who some of y'all may have heard on the Rev Left Radio podcast. Um, she's coming on as a writer, super excited about that and uh, the kind of POV she's going to give um, on feminist issues. And we're in the process of obtaining an ISBN, basically the barcode that you put on, on published books. And then we will be publishing the Midwestern Marks Print Journal, very first edition. So that is super cool. None of that would be possible without the support on Patreon. And yeah, I think that's it for announcements. You got anything, Carlos? Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, this is a journal that, like we've mentioned before, we've worked really, really hard on. Um, and once we get this uh, ISSN number, uh, we're set to go. So a lot of the delays have been formalities that now that we know how to deal with them, we should be able to crank these out sooner uh, and quicker. So um, again, like you said, this couldn't have been possible without the support from Patreon. So if, if you like our project, uh, go ahead and support us there or in any other way that you can. For sure. Yeah. And as far as personal updates um we know a lot of you are invested in our lives you're all wonderful comrades um who we've met over the internet interwebs um but uh, i i just recently took a job um, at a new college where i'll be coaching and, and able to get my grad graduate degree there free of charge which i totally would not have been able to pay for that so that is very very cool for me um, but i'll be very busy next year working on my grad degree and other things so how about you carlos what you got going on well i, I think that's excellent eddie um and i what i have going on is i'll be teaching my first intro class this semester i've been TAing so far and that's been great but um, it's a whole new monster having to construct a class on your own and, and guide yourself. So I'm really, really excited about that um, coming up. And I also have my master's exam in about a month now. So I've, Eddie knows I've been driving myself nuts uh, studying for that. So I'm, I'm excited for that as well. Yes, Carlos has been working nonstop. So it's very nice that we get to sit down and do a podcast now. Um, so what do you want to talk about first? Uh, the recent news out of Latin America. Obviously, we recently did our podcast about Peru and Pedro Castillo. Um, but now there's been some recent developments coming out of Chile. And uh, um, yeah, you just want to talk about it? Yeah, so pretty interesting. The Communist Party candidate in Chile, Daniel Jaude, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's up in the polls right now. I think he's at 31% in the latest poll. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, if uh, we remember, neoliberalism officially starts with the uh, uh, coup in Chile of Allende. So um, I think last year they overturned the uh, constitution of the dictatorship. And now we have a Communist Party candidate that seems like he can probably win. So uh, within the context of a victory, from a uh, socialist uh, candidate in Peru, 
and within the context of the uh, Brazil elections in, in 22 and, and Lula being able to run, um, there's some really excited developments uh, going on in Latin America. And um, I think it's going to be up to us to, to analyze uh, how we can express solidarity with our comrades over there and how their victories can translate into victories for, for our working class as well. Yeah, I mean, essentially, if you look at the history of Latin America, almost every country had a workers uprising that would have been successful if it wasn't for blatant, brutal intervention um, from the West and bolstering the, the ruling classes of those countries in Latin America. And Operation Condor essentially attempted to kill and torture the revolutionary spirit out of the Latin American people. Um, and it was successful for a time, but, but they never truly killed that revolutionary spirit. And now you're finding that um, with the Latin American working class finding new ways to organize themselves and take power. So it's super encouraging. Um, and I, for me, as someone in the Imperial Corps in the United States, the country responsible for all that violence, it's... Um, it motivates me more to, to spread class consciousness among the working class here. And I mean, to be honest, I don't want to get too negative about the left, but it also disgusts me when I see people saying like, we'll never escape capital, right? We'll never, we'll never move out of the mode of production that is capitalism. Meanwhile, our comrades in Latin America are busting their butts, um, even though their ancestors uh, were tortured for being communists. So um, yeah, got to keep the fight going, y'all. I always, um, when it comes to this, I always remember because, I mean, uh, there, there's a segment of communists in the U.S. that um, that carry a, a really nice and respectable uh, spirit of anti-imperialism, which we absolutely share, but they have this sort of disgust for the U.S., and that's completely understandable. But um, there's an interview that I always remember. It comes from... Um, the movie, The Examined Life. It's a movie where they uh, talk to various philosophers and they talk to this one uh, Marxist philosopher, Mark, uh, Michael Hart. Um, and <laughs> they're in a little canoe talking and he, he's talking about his experience going to Nicaragua during the revolution. And he's like, I'm here to help, uh, what can I do? And the Nicaraguans told them, the best thing you can do is get the fuck back home and do a revolution over there. And honestly, that's, that's the position of most Latin Americans. What has stopped Latin American revolutions from being more successful than what they could have been or being uh, grabbing power in the first place has been the U.S. state apparatus. So it is our duty as anti-imperialists to do all we can to get the working class in the U.S. in a position of power. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think that provides a good transition into the next thing we're going to talk about, um, which is the conflict that happened between uh, TYT, Aaron Mate, and Jimmy Dore. TYT being the Young Turks, Cenk Uger, and Anna Kasparian, mostly. Um, so Kyle Kalinske has a really good, I guess, what you'd call like a material breakdown or a timeline of everything that, that happened. Um, all the events that happened, you can watch that. So what he did, because he's friends with a lot of the people who were involved and because it had gotten so ugly and personal, was he separated the personal insults that were going on um, versus the policy. Um, and what the policy was, as we did a video on, was um, uh, Cenk Uger and Anna Kasparian were accusing the gray zone journalists like Aaron Mate um, of being paid by Russia or being paid by the Syrian government for blowing holes in, in these chemical gas stories, which... Um, if you follow the story and if you look into the OPCW cover up, there was a long time empl or employee or, or worker for the United Nations whose job was to investigate these things in Duma, Syria. 
And multiple senior investigators who had worked for the UN for years came out and said that, no, this was fabricated and there's no evidence that Assad was using chemical gas on his people. And of course, those chemical gas attacks were what the United States used as the justification for launching, launching missiles at Syria thereafter, um, you know, which, of course, they've continued to do even under President Joe Biden. So as TYT, as advocates of the left, um, to come out there and get that wrong and accuse actual leftist journalists of being um, of being paid by the Syri by the Syrian government is disgusting and it's it's being pro imperialist and and it's made me almost consider T I mean totally consider TYT to not really be on the left anymore that the, that they've taken too many liberal positions whether it be on on RussiaGate um, promoting RussiaGate despite all the evidence saying that that Putin was not of course controlling Trump like a puppet. Um, uh, on force the vote. That was another place where they got into it with Jimmy Dore, where it seemed they were taking the more liberal position, the Nancy Pelosi position, um, rather than the position of the working class. Um, but then Jimmy recently <laughs> comes out and does this thing where he, he essentially admits um, to something that he had done uh, towards Anna Kasparian on a personal level, um, like that would be considered harassment. Um, and it seemed like Jimmy was trying to justify it a little bit and which was probably wrong on a personal level. And then the fact that he did it right before he had Max Blumenthal on his show to talk about, you know, probably Syria or something. And Max Blumenthal comes on the show and his mouth is like gaping wide open as Jimmy has just talked about this weird story that happened between him and Anna Kasparian. And, and Carlos, you had said the reason you thought Jimmy brought it up was because Anna Kasparian was was likely going to leak this story. Um, no, it was in the comments. That, that wasn't me. There was a oh, those sorry. people in the comments that uh, in in Carl's video, um, trying to defend uh, uh, Jimmy Dore by saying that uh, that uh, Anna was uh, basically blackmailing him. Um, so he went uh, slim shady and and sort of attacked himself before they could attack him. Um, but I, I honestly, I think that um, I would agree with Kyle that it, it, it becomes really dumb to intervene when it, it gets to that personal level and those levels of, of personal attacks. Um, I, we usually agree uh, pretty right on with uh, the stuff that Jimmy Dore and, and the gray zone guys who are usually um, there along with him on the show with the stuff they put out, right? And we agree with it for different reasons. We're coming from a Marxist theoretical position. Sometimes they don't understand the things uh, as they arise from the root, um, like, like we feel like we do, but um, nonetheless, their positions are usually pretty right on on calling out American imperialism, um, on calling out politicians, which even if they're left politicians or progressives, I, I think we should be uh, calling them out when we can and pushing them or or doing at least solidarity critique. I think a lot of people focus on, on the form that, that Jimmy puts out, the way he says things, and they really got to focus on the content because the content is usually right. And there's few channels that are that big that are consistently getting stuff uh, correct. And in terms of the form, I'm, I'm sorry to break it down to you. Most working class people are like that. Um, they don't have the sort of attitude and, and, uh, uh, verboise that most middle class or uh, folks who have gone to college and, and who are academics have. Um, so it's not without a reason that probably the biggest channel is Jimmy Dore. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, in looking at it going forward, I mean, like, 
like you said, the personal stuff, we don't really know Jimmy Dore. I feel like that's between him and his female friends and female coworkers to work out on a personal level. But looking at it as in uh, from a collective level and from a working class standpoint in the movement for socialism, when these channels, these very, very large YouTube channels who don't necessarily have a structural base to their thinking, who aren't seeing, you know, capital at the root um, and, and the sort of the the systematic understanding that Marx gives us of capitalism, it becomes much more difficult to get these major issues right. And when you have TYT, who's a much more corporate outlet, consistently getting the major issues wrong versus Jimmy Dore consistently getting the issues right. Um, yeah, we need to look at that. We need to look at who's watching Jimmy Dore. Are these working class people, you know, and of course, be critical of him and the people close to him need to be critical of him. But as far as who's pushing out content that aids imperialism and stuff, it's TYT. Um, and I, I had written them off as garbage a while ago. Um, I'm sure they do good stuff, but I would only like, I guess what I'm saying is I would consider working with Jimmy Dore on something or going on his show. But if I was going to work with TYT, it would have to be extremely specified. It would have to be like, we're working specifically on Medicare for all in, you know, a certain area. I wouldn't trust them to work on like a political campaign because I don't trust them to be in support of the working class, whereas Jimmy seems to be. Yeah, well, and that's the that's the Marxist position that, that comes from the, the practical studies of, of Marxists from the 20th century, from Lenin to Mao which is knowing where you're placed in the specific moment in terms of contradictory relations. You know, at times we're gonna be in contradictory positions to, uh, to TYT and, and to Jimmy Dore and to uh, uh, establishment, um, not establishment, progressive Democrats, the AOCs and the Democratic Socialists. At other times we're gonna be in, in positions where they're not the central contradiction uh, that we're facing, where there's other contradictions that are more important and we're gonna be allying with them on those issues. So. Um, being a Marxist is being able to analyze concretely the situation that you're in and know who are your friends and who are your enemies in a specific moment, right? Um, so I find myself uh, as an anti-imperialist, uh, usually agreeing a lot more with, with Jimmy Dore, but when it comes to national stuff and, and politics, which I'm honestly not too involved with, uh, TYT is usually, and Jimmy Dore, they're usually on the same, on the same boat um, with a few exceptions, but um, at the end of the day, what promotes socialism is being able to work with the working class directly to gain working class respect um, and, and to work on working class uh, consciousness, right? Which is not just having people realize that their workers and, and their boss uh, is screwing them over. That's pretty simplistic. I think most workers realize that, but realizing the power that they have as, as a class and the historical role that they have as a class. And that's something that uh, to do, you need to have a foundation in dialectical materialism um, and, and, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think we've probably taken that analysis as far as we can, as far as the, the Marxist position on the beef between TYT and Aaron Mate and Jimmy Dore. Eddie, it's also important. Uh, I, I think that we touched, uh, the recent vote concerning, uh, the blockade of the U S on Cuba. Uh, the U S has had a 60 year long, a little bit more 60 year long blockade on Cuba. And it's, uh, wrong at a legal level. It's wrong at a moral level. It's it's honestly despicable. Um, but consistently, what we see is that the world votes against it, and two nations vote in favor of it. Usually, it's the U.S. and Israel. That's what it was this time around. That's what it was last time around as well, which I think was a 2019 or 2020 vote. Um, so that's that's despicable. Uh, what we've seen from the Joe Biden administration is uh, uh, more of the Trump 
phenomenon when it comes to the relationships with Cuba, which is sad because one of the few, very few <laughs> good things that Obama did was make the relationships with Cuba a little bit more flexible. For example, in doing so, in 2015, Cuba was able to have the highest GDP in Latin America. Uh, they achieved a growth of almost 4.5%, and this is information from the World Bank. And as we know in socialism, when this growth takes place, it takes place in all aspects of society. So even though the GDP is a bullshit measure to some extent, um, when growth takes place in socialism, it happens in, in all spheres of society. So um, we, we saw that flexibilization, what it did to Cuba, uh, thanks to uh, um, the flexibilization. I was hoping that Biden was gonna continue the Obama policy with that. It doesn't seem like he is. Uh, so um, hopefully he does, but let's see. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it makes sense from the perspective of the ruling class, if you look at what happened, especially during COVID. So you have Obama loosening up the blockade for the first time and all of a sudden Cuba is able to flourish um, as they probably hadn't before. Um, and then you see Trump put it back on and, and the, the liberal ruling class has been pre pretending Trump's this belligerent dictator who's so much different from any any president we've had. But now that that liberal class finds themselves back in power, they have they're under no obligation or no incentive really to take the blockade off of Cuba, which I think is where we should start pressuring Biden on this, because, as you said, it's one of the most horrific things you can do to a country to hold them under economic warfare. And Cuba was held under economic warfare by by the Trump administration, who Biden and the liberals told us, you know, Biden would at least be the lesser of two evils over and over and over again. Um, and now Biden's allowed the blockade to continue. But under Trump, they were they were blockading Cuba during the pandemic as Cuba was shipping doctors all around the world as the U.S. was continually sanctioning countries and launching drone strikes around the world during the pandemic. So you see the, the difference in production um, between these two countries and, and the U.S., now definitely does not want Kobe, uh, Cuba's GDP to go up. China was the only country who was able to continue to grow uh, during COVID around the whole world. Um, and the U.S. is trying to convince their people that China's evil and they need to be destroyed and that communism could never work. So now all of a sudden you throw Cuba into this mix, this small island country right off of Florida. Um, you have another another sort of communist success story. I mean, which it already was, right? Their COVID numbers are a minor, minor, minor fraction of what the U.S. is, is even relatively to their populations. And, and, Cuba they, were, sh and they, they were. It's, it's also important to note that they were shipping doctors all across the world um, as soon as the pandemic started. Their their doctors. Um, there has been a movement to get the doctors, uh, the Cuban doctors, a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, the brigade was called the Henry Reeve Brigade, which Funny enough, was an American soldier that participated in the Cuban Revolutionary War. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's honestly despicable. I think at the beginning of the, the pandemic, Cuba was trying to buy ventilators from one of the Scandinavian countries, and they blocked that. Um, if people don't understand how far the blockade extends. It extends to internet connection. Um, it's, it's honestly horrific. I think uh, if I can recommend something, I, I recommend you watch the series. All right, so I had to look up the name, but it, it, the Belly of the Beast Cuba group, they've done fantastic work. They did a series of three short documentaries on how uh, the blockade has affected Cuba, specifically during the time of the pandemic. And it's honestly horrific to see. And the fact that Cuba has still been able to, to carry onward and, and to practice international solidarity is just an act of absolutely Herculean strength and, and solidarity. Absolutely. And I think the country you were thinking about with the, the Scandinavian bank blocking their last 
it was the last 10 million of a $120 million payment that they had made for the vaccine. It was actually Venezuela. And I think it was a bank in Denmark or somewhere where they were trying to get the vaccine and the U.S. was blocking them with sanctions. So you're seeing, as, as we were saying at the beginning of the show, this, you know, movement to, towards socialism or um, in the global South and in the East um, and the U S is continually trying to hold it down in any way they can with sanctions, which is why I think the Biden administration is going to try and leave sanctions on Cuba, you know, to prevent socialism from flourishing and to prevent people from seeing that you can create um, a system of production based on people over profit. I mean, that's kind of what the doctors prove. Um, but I think that's probably enough on that for now. Uh, you ready to move to the next part of our show here? Well, we have the the 100 year anniversary that I think is pretty big too. Um, the CPC. And, and and yeah, what you mentioned about the the 10 uh, was it 10 million dollars? That's also yeah. a thing they did to Venezuela. I mean, but that, that Oh, they did it to Cuba too. What they did to Cuba was hold uh, the US stepped in to a sale that they were going to do for ventilators early on. Oh. Um, but that that helps you see the the geopolitical role that these Scandinavian countries play mm -hmm. um, and how they aid imperialism always, how they're the benefactors of imperialism. I mean, if I rob a bank and you're the one driving the car, you're probably <laughs> as guilty as me, right? And, and that's what the global position of these Scandinavian countries are. Yeah, they have high rates of happiness or whatever, and they have these cool policies that socialists in the U.S. love, but for God's sake, they're the biggest benefactors of imperialism because when people point the finger, they just point it to the U.S., which, okay, they're the main agent, but they should be pointing it to these Scandinavian countries that are benefactors as well. Absolutely. Um, so uh, another big news is that uh, the biggest um, success story, or at least one of the biggest success stories in, in, in socialism, uh, China, uh, they're... 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party is today, which means that it was yesterday in China. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is huge. What, what do you think about the what, what do you think about the anniversary, Eddie? And, and did you get to see the the video where they did the the light show? I what did. The video that? was so cool. I I, t I tweeted out one of the light shows that they were having, and I said, "You are a tanky if you think this is cool." Or if you think yeah. this is sick, I think, because it was, it was really cool. And yet yeah, it's, it's interesting to think when you, when you know, at least, you know, on a broad level, the history of, of the party, and you think back to when it was formed in 1921 versus where they've come to now, and they still have that hammer and sickle, right? They still consider themselves communists and, you know, and we consider them to be communists too, to be, to be forging their own path to communism and the way that's poo-pooed by Western leftists and, and the bread tubers of the world. It's, it's frustrating because when you look at the imperialist aggression of the United States, like we've been talking about and the way they've tried to sanction countries um, and hold them in poverty and the way that China has um, gotten around that to the point where they're now growing much, much faster than the U.S. And um, they've still kept their commitment to communism. Right. And they know they've allowed petty bourgeois ideology into their country. Right. They know they're not 
withering their state apparatus and becoming a holy communist society where the commodity form is abolished, but they have a plan to get there. They have a plan to construct it, which is much more than any socialist in the U.S. has done, obviously. Um, and when you see the hundred years of the Communist Party and you think about the material conditions of China versus um, other countries that have not uh, gained their independence and gained their independence of resources and are still um, under the, the boot of neocolonialism, it, it's awesome to see and it makes you proud to be a communist really if you think about the movement internationally um and and all the solidarity in the world to the uh our hundreds of comrades or hundreds of thousands or even millions i think of comrades over there in the chinese communist party yeah 100 million 100 million, million comrades in the party it's the biggest party on the planet um it's truly a remarkable story eddie and um i, I think it should make anyone who considers himself a communist or a socialist hopeful for the 21st century because it is going to be a scary century. Um, the effects of climate change are, are going to come here. They're already here, but they're going to keep intensifying. Um, so we need a socialist economy that prioritizes the working class, that's, that's governed by the working class, and that has the incentive to deal with a type of growth that's centered around human beings, and that does so in a harmonious relationship with, with nature. Because if not, I mean, what are we going to do? Go to different planets and live there <laughs> so that's literally what the capitalists say we'll colonize yeah. mars <laughs> how about we take care of this planet exactly and uh the last thing i wanted to mention uh in terms of news updates is that midwestern marks turns one month not one month <laughs> midwestern marks turns one year old in one month so uh it has truly been a pleasure uh to develop this project with you and with the 40 some other comrades that we have uh, in, in the project. Um, and it's been beautiful to see it grow for the last six months. We've been basically averaging well over 100,000 unique viewers on our website every month. So it's, it's honestly been fantastic what we've been able to do. And I'm very hopeful for, for the future of Midwestern Marks and the role we can play in the developing of class consciousness in the U.S. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's fun to take a moment like this to reflect because, you know, We've just been taking it day by day since we graduated in the middle of a pandemic and it's unbelievable really to us how it's grown kind of so that's what we're just going to continue to do keep working on it and keep you know keep our goal the same our goal is to be connected to the working class and to um, spread class consciousness and, and educate people about socialism so yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the last update. Uh, I guess besides that we have the journal finally it's going to be printed in, in July so. Uh, look out for that. And, and that's it. Uh, without further ado, if you want to get cracking on the on the reading today, I don't know if you want me to contextualize it a little bit before we start. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. So um, what we have, uh, what we're going to be doing today is checking out uh, a page and a half. It's, it's actually one paragraph, a long, long paragraph uh, from the preface to Marx's contribution to the critique of political economy. Um, I call this text the dress rehearsal for capital. Capital is published in 1867. This text is published at the beginning of 1859. It's a text that Marx has spent 15 or so years at the British Museum in London studying economics uh, to build. Um, and it, the text itself is, is basically the first three chapters of capital. Um, but it's, it's a very important text. And in this preface, which is the most famous uh, and, and uh, has been used as a pedagogical uh, text uh, all throughout the 20th century. In these two paragraphs that we're going to talk about, he reflects deeply on the advancements that him and Engels have been able to make over the last uh, two decades or so. So 
Yes. And I want to point out before we start the point that we're starting from uh, right before Mark says that he says uh, after talking about how he was working at a newspaper before and now he gets the chance to go study economics because he realizes that production is the is mostly what what moves society as you know, we're going to talk about that here in a sec. But he says, I eagerly grasped the opportunity to withdraw from the public stage to my study. And I definitely relate to that. I often wish I could um, <laughs> delete my TikTok account forever and just read Marx. But um, <laughs> and I'm sure sure you relate to that feeling. But Marx would hate us if that's what we did. But <laughs> would <laughs> like that's why I wrote all this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we're going to be starting. Uh, uh, three paragraphs in for those who might want to follow. Um, so I don't know if you want to start reading out of here, if you want me to, to kick it off with the reading. You can kick it off. All right. Um, so he says, the first work which I undertook to dispel the doubts assailing me was a critical re-examination of the Hegelian philosophy of law. The introduction to this work being published in the Deutsch Franz... Uh, it's the, the German newspaper. It, check back in a year. I'll speak German. Watch. Um, <laughs> issued in Paris in 1844. My inquiry led me to the conclusion that neither legal relations nor political forms could be comprehended, whether by themselves or on the basis of so-called general of, of a so-called general development of the human mind, but that on the contrary, they originate in the material conditions of life, the totality of which Hegel, following the example of English when French thinkers of the 18th century embraces with the term civil society, that the anatomy of this society, civil society, however, has to be sought in political economy. Okay, pause. Break that down for us a little bit. What's he saying about Hegel? Well, it's, I, I, he's challenging the idealist conception of history, which sees mind or spirit. And it, it's not just mind or spirit. It's always embodied in matter, right? Uh, the concept of begrift in German uh, means the notion embodied, um, but he's challenging the conception that uh, ideas are that which move history and introducing the conception that it is actually the material conditions of people, specifically the, the conditions that help them reproduce themselves as a society. Uh, uh, it is those conditions which create the boundaries and we'll get to the specifics now, but those conditions are the ones which help consciousness arise. Um, so I, one of the interesting things to pull from this paragraph is that out of this work, and, and we'll see it in a bit, comes the spatial metaphor of the base and the superstructure. But there's actually another metaphor here, and that's the, the metaphor of anatomy, right? Um, he, he, he says that to the anatomy of this civil society, right? Um, so if we think of civil society as the outside of the body, the anatomy, the functionings within it that allow for the outside to look a certain way, um, that anatomy is to be sought in, in political economy. Yes, and I, I got an example I think that'll work here um, that it can show what Marx is talking about for people to break it down. Recently, um, I've been in this debate with a lot of centrists and liberals about the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. So if you look at all the relevant information, all the U.S. generals, including Dwight Eisenhower, were telling us that Japan was in the process of surrendering. They didn't want to fight the war anymore. They, they were a spent force. And there was no reason to drop two atomic weapons on Japan. 
However, um, the Soviet Union was very powerful. They had lost a lot of people in the war and a lot of infrastructure in the war. Um, but the U.S. saw them as a threat, obviously being communists. And so to kick off the Cold War, they dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a show of power. There's tons of evidence inside of Japan and from the U.S. intelligence at the time that showed us Japan was going to surrender and that the U.S. had no reason to do this and that the U.S. wanted to do this as a threat to the Soviet Union um, as so they could continue expanding capital. Obviously, communism threatens the expansion of capital. So we see the inner mechanisms of what the US is doing. What the US said at the time to justify that is the idealist argument, this argument that Japanese people were just so crazy and so dedicated to this war that they would fight to the last man with bamboo sticks. And therefore, we had to drop two nukes on them to get them to surrender. Now, if you have a brain cell in your head, you might be thinking, well, Japan did surrender after we dropped nuclear weapons on them. So doesn't that prove that they weren't willing to fight to the last man with a bamboo stick? Well, of <laughs> course, <laughs> that's because the idealist conception is wrong, but it's used to lie, lie people or lie the public into believing um, uh, falling in favor of imperialist aggression and it's bred into our heads um, since birth. You're taught to look at history um, as sort of the great man of history, right? Whoever's the leader of a country at the time drives that country's history. World War II was these battles between great leaders. Of course, that's not how things really work, right? Different countries are working in the interests of capital. Um, and, and that's what the bombings were, a bombing um, as a threat to the Soviet Union in the interest of capital. Um, and that's what the materialist argument will get you, whereas the, the idealist argument that people are repeating to this day will, will give you a wrong, a wrong view of how it happened that serves the interests of the capital that created that, that um, idea in the first place. Absolutely. It's uh, interesting you mentioned there the great man of history. Um, uh, perspective that comes from a fellow by the name of Thomas Carlyle, which was uh, within the groups that, that Marx in the manifesto would, would then go on and call the, the reactionary socialist. Um, he, he wrote a book that was actually uh, pretty radical. Um, it was called Past and Present and Engels did a review of it in 1844. And he's like, the only book worth reading from 1843 is Carlyle's book. Um, but all right, we, we can continue if uh, you'd yeah. like. I, so I'm going to skip a, a sentence and go in, in, into uh, In the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations which are independent of their will, namely relations of production appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. The totality of these relations of productions constitutes the economic structure of society the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. You want me to stop there? Yeah. So I, I, one of the things that points that, that, that immediately comes to mind is that when people talk about the example of the base and the superstructure, they use the word base and superstructure. But uh, I think most English translations use foundation, um, but yeah, what do you think about the passage? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the piece you wrote recently wrote when it says it conditions the superstructure. Um, the base is what drives things and it conditions the superstructure. So it's not um, absolutely determinant, right? Our superstructure isn't absolutely determinant on the base of uh, production, but it's conditioned by them. Like the example I just gave, our ideas of war are conditioned um, by the capitalist class um, to be, to be wrongheaded ideas. But um, yeah. Uh, you want to, what do you think? <laughs> well, 
Well, I, I think that this shows precisely how it is that, as Althusser said, that Marx opens up the continent of history. He gives us a way to analyze history scientifically. And that's through analyzing how it is that these developments and how things are produced uh, come about and how these developments help us explain pretty much everything else in society. Now, as, as you mentioned, and as I mentioned in my article, we can't reduce everything else we're explaining to simply, you know, uh, what are the, the instruments of production that we're using at the moment and the relations corresponding to these. But um, you have to consider in the explanation of any event within the superstructure, if we, we want to if we want to keep the jargon, you have to consider it always in its relationship to the economic foundation, to how it is that society is reproducing itself uh, constantly and how that reproduction is developing itself. Yes, fantastic. So uh, the following passage says, uh, the mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of man that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. Again, here, what we have restated is uh, the same traditional Marxist analysis that's central to the perspective of uh, historical materialism, uh, which is that the material conditions are that which determine, um, they don't absolutely determine. Uh, it's, I developed the, I didn't develop, but I'm using, I'm bringing in the concept from uh, free will philosophy of soft determinism. It's a compatibilist approach. It both determines, but within that determination, it has a relative autonomy, relative independence, and, and it could do sort of what it wants, but within the boundaries of that economic uh, determination. I like when Marx says that um, the relations of production are independent of your of human will um, and are you workers within that system, and I guess capitalists too, must subordinate their will to the system. So that's something that takes place within your brain that everybody knows if you work a job that you don't like, you have to subordinate your will to know this is just what I do in order to survive. And, and those relations and your need to do that is independent of yourself. Those are the relations that you're born into. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I've received some questions since I, I published the article specifically relating to the focus that I make on the distinction between conditions and determines. And for those who are interested, uh, the word in German for conditions is bedingt and for determines is besmint. And they essentially mean what we think they, what, what, they, what they're traduced to, um, translated to, not traduced, uh, in, in English. So uh, uh, bedingt refers to the form of determination which ought to be considered as, as the precondition for something right so be, before this uh, superstructure exists uh, what is presupposed is that there's an economic foundation that uh, has some relationship to it and then besmint which is the one that's used translated to determines is the word that uh, that uh, states that well it's determined in the sense of creating boundaries for the superstructure um, so together, what we should analyze this passage as is that the economic foundation both presupposes and sets the boundaries for the legal, political, ideological superstructure. And within those boundaries, yes, it is relatively free to, to do certain things, um, but you, you can't just interpret that separate from the boundaries and, uh, and, and presupposed economic foundation, which drives it to to exist really yeah and you see different superstructures that emerge within different capitalist countries like we were talking about earlier the scandinavian countries work differently than like say the us 
but um, our capitalists are willing to collaborate in order to expand their capital via imperialism. So you're mm -hmm. still seeing similar relations, even though the superstructures vary. And you're seeing similar superstructures, sorry, superstructures that will, will team up with the, the other superstructures created by capitalist relations. Yeah, and it's also uh, another perfect example, an example a lot of people use is uh, Japanese capitalism. Japanese capitalism kept a lot of the honor codes from their feudal society. Um, now, uh, as far as I've heard, some of that is being torn away. And I think that would probably uh, prove this thesis correctly that slowly as it develops, the change ends up happening in the, in the superstructure, right? The appendage. Um, but uh, that, that's another, the cultural forms which capitalism takes in the different places in which it appears um, are relatively different, right? And that's because they have their relative autonomy and they come from different material conditions and um, the foundation itself functions in different ways, right? But each You could use the US there too, where the mode of production of slavery has left um, tons of racism left over and our, just, mm -hmm. our legal systems and our governments and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, hey, you wanna continue? Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the next passage is important. Um, at a certain stage of development, the material produ productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms with the property relations within the framework of which they have op operated hitherto, so up to now. Um, from forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters, right? So that's an important point. That's uh, that, that concept of the relations of productions turn into a fetter. Um, that means an interruption, right? That the capitalist relations of production stifle the development of the economy, right? And we must not misinterpret like some folks who are, are great spokesmen for socialism do and say and, and think that well, what socialist relations of production do is allow the systems of production that we have now to flourish even more so we can make more shit. Um, no, socialism doesn't remove the fetter in the sense of allowing us to make more shit, um, but it changes fundamentally how it is that things are produced so that things are produced more efficiently, right? So that we can create more wealth, but it changes the concept of what wealth is. Wealth is not just thought of in terms of things. Wealth is centered around the human being. So it's about creating the society, which creates the best conditions for each person as a being in community to develop as best as they can with the specific characteristics that they have. So if you look at China with their, um, you know, state state central plans and their their um, party run banks and publicly owned grocery stores and things like that, we see they're removing different fetters of production that the United States has, which is what allowed China to be the only country in the world to grow um, during COVID-19. Obviously, they're the fastest growing country in the world. And by growth, um, as socialists, we don't just mean, oh, we support China because they've removed the fetters of production and now they're producing more crap. <laughs> what Vijay Prashad does is he says, look at the level of public work that took place in China during COVID, the, the, the amount of people who were donating their time to create masks and things like that. The numbers were astronomically higher in China than they were in the US. So there we see you know, a change in their superstructure. As I was mentioning, mentioning with the publicly owned banks, the, the party members on boards, the profit sharing schemes that are set up, 
um, raising their people out of poverty, investing in public infrastructure. Um, these are all things that remove the fetters of production and cap of capitalism that just allow the working masses to live in misery that China is looking to ameliorate as they allow certain private investment from the world market that allows them to continue increasing their productive forces. So you essentially have really, really smart people within the 100 million person Chinese Communist Party looking at the global economy and figuring out how you know they can transition their mode of production. And, and one thing that's good to look at is like, what is the level of public work? Is is their superstructure changing? Um, you know, when when Deng Xiaoping took over for for Mao, he he said, "We know petty bourgeois ideology is going to infiltrate our superstructure, um, but how do we deal with that? How do we transition out of it? And how do we eventually change the relations of production?" So yeah, that's probably enough about China. But I think it serves as a good example of what Marx is talking about here, where capitalism is becoming a fetter on production um, in the rest of the world, while China seems to be, um, you know. Uh, surging ahead using planning and, and socialism correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And and another important point that he makes right after, which is a thing that a lot of uh, Western socialists get confused because they have idealist tendencies. And if something's not perfect, nah, I don't want it, right? Um, it's like a picky eater. If, if my burger comes with a pickle, I can't take it out. I, I, I need a new one, right? Um, he says, no social order is ever destroyed before all the productive forces for which it is sufficient have been destroyed and new superior relations of production never replace older ones before the material conditions for their existence have matured within the framework of the old society. What does that mean? That it, socialism is a process, right? It's a process of development. We're not gonna have the ideal, just because a, country, uh, a country's uh, communist party or workers party grabs power, doesn't mean that uh, how Marx describes the lower or higher phase of communist society and the Gotha program is gonna immediately come about. Um, the point is that uh, anything goes in socialism as long as it's moving forward towards the ideal of communism. And I think uh, um, Deng Xiaoping said it correctly that you can't socialize poverty. You need to develop first and, and, and do so in a way that creates wealth all across society and then start uh, creating the conditions for the possibility of a communist society. And that's, that's a global phenomenon. You can't have a little communist utopia country um, on one corner of the earth while the rest of the world is dominated by global capital. That's quite literally impossible. That's why blockades are effective because you're working within a globe that is a planet that is globalized, right? In order to have everything we need, we need to work with the rest of the world. So um, uh, this is important to know that uh, even the stage of socialism is not perfect. Uh, yes. Everything goes. Yeah, and then this reminds me of the recent Hakeem video on the ECP and the problems with economic planning, where he talks about how, how the frame, you know, the material conditions in capitalism mature and create the conditions that will allow for socialism. And when they're talking about the ECP, they find that the Soviet Union was essentially using linear planning, pen and paper planning to, to um, plan how they would distribute their goods. Um, and Mises looked at this and he said that economic planning is impossible because the Soviet Union had inefficiencies in how they were planning compared to markets. Now, what Hakim breaks down is that actually the inefficiencies weren't that bad and the Soviet Union did pretty good, even with pen and paper planning. Uh, but then he goes in depth on some cockshots, um, some cockshot arguments, including towards a new socialism. Um, which show that actually now the software um, for understanding this stuff has been created. And actually we want to, to move to a society where things are produced for their use values rather than their market values. And that's gonna take a lot of software and planning to figure out you know, what the means of subsistence are, what needs to be produced, how can we plan these things. 
But under the framework of capitalism, we've seen the development of that software that can do it easily. Chile obviously tried with Project CyberSyn that was crushed, but companies like Walmart and Amazon have, have found planning mechanisms that allow them to internally plan um, all their processes of production, which are going to be extremely useful in any kind of transition to socialism. So you see here, Marx already saying, you know, the, the conditions and, and uh, for the next system mature within the old system before the transition in mode of productions actually happens. And, and I think China understands that very well. Oh, yeah, man. It's scary, man, because I, I, I believe in what Hegel said, that the owl of Minerva flies at dawn, right? You can't just predict shit from the future. But man, is Marx good at doing that. Um, <laughs> for, for every situation, it, it feels like you can find a passage there uh, where Marx explains exactly what's going on. But um, I have company that's at the door, so we might have to uh, have our, our last sentence here. Okay. Um, it is a good one. It is my, my favorite sentence from this book. It says, mankind thus inevitably sets itself only such tasks as it is able to solve. Since closer examination will always show that the problem itself arises only when the material conditions for its solution are already present, or at least in the course of formation, right? Um, so socialism is an achievable task. To get back to what, what you were mentioning <laughs> earlier to the pessimistic trends, if, if it arises in our consciousness, it's, it's probably achievable. Um, the problems itself, the concepts that we use, it, it's all related to the historical epoch we're in and our context within that, the relations of production within that. So um, socialism is possible. We just have to work for it, right? It's not um, part of interpreting determination is not just the relation of economics to the superstructure, but the relations of those material conditions to our consciousness, right? So there's, there's free will within a certain determination. So it's up to us to be active, to be doing what we're doing, informing people, building class consciousness, uh, working with workers on the ground, and then taking that struggle eventually to the political realm and, and fighting, right? Realizing that this is a generational project. This doesn't end with us. This doesn't probably end with our kids. This is something that we're going to continue fighting and fighting for. As, as Mao's old proverb says, um, you move, the, there's an old man trying to move two mountains and he's going slowly, but then his kids and and his kids' kids, and they keep doing it, and eventually the two mountains move. Um, it's a generational project that we're embarking in here. So uh, be calm, be patient, but be, but be active. So. Yes, and as Mao said, the correct ideas come from practice. So the more that we work to build socialism in the U.S., the more the correct paths forward will reveal themselves as our, our conditions mature, as Marx was saying in 1844. All right, Carlos, thank you um, for doing this podcast. I hope you have fun with the company that's at your door. Uh, I really enjoyed this and hopefully we'll be, we'll be pumping some more out soon. Sounds good, Eddie. Thank you for everyone for watching this. Solidarity, everyone.